Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. And with me this week is Anika Osaki Exum. Hello, Anika. Hi, Sean. So, Anika, you're a reporter at the Japan Times, but today we've brought you on Deep Dive in a kind of guest slash co host role for our show on LGBTQ issues. Yes, thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah, so you've been doing some reporting specifically on LGBTQ issues for the Japan Times. And today I hope we can catch people up on where the conversation has been going on these issues in Japan. Yeah, and I don't think that conversation is showing any signs of stalling over the summer. So on today's episode, I'll be speaking to Fumino Sugiyama, co chair of Tokyo Rainbow Pride, the group that organizes Pride events every April, and Ellen McCready, a professor at Aoyama Gakuin University. Both are parents, authors, activists, and trans individuals. Sounds interesting. Let's get to the show. It's officially Pride Month in many cities and countries around the world. But, as you mentioned in the intro, Japan's Pride festivities take place in April around the Golden Week holidays. Still, last week I think Japan's LGBTQ community found something to be proud about heading into June. Anika, do you mind telling our listeners what that was? Sure. So on May 30th, the Nagoya District Court ruled that not recognizing same sex marriage in Japan is, in fact, unconstitutional. This came out of a 2019 lawsuit filed by a male couple in their 30s from Aichi Prefecture, where Nagoya is. And the couple argued that the state not recognizing their marriage constituted a form of discrimination that is banned under Article 14 of Japan's Constitution. What does Article 14 of the Japanese Constitution actually say? Well, uh, according to a translation on the government's website, it says, quote, all of the people are equal under the law and there shall be no discrimination in political, economic or social relations because of race, creed, sex, social status or family origin. Now, that's an English translation. Obviously, the wording of the original Japanese is what has been and continues to be discussed in various cases pertaining to same sex marriage. Okay, so is this the first time such a ruling has been handed down? Actually, there there seems to be a bit of a game of ping pong going on in the courts just now. There are six similar cases we have our eyes on. The first was in 2021 in Sapporo. The ruling said that by not acknowledging same-sex marriage, Japan's civil code and family registration law were violating the Constitution's guarantee of equality before the law. However, last June, the Osaka District Court went the other way, saying that not allowing same-sex unions was constitutional. And then, in November, a ruling came down from the Tokyo District Court saying the lack of laws to protect the rights of same-sex couples presents an unconstitutional situation. So, Sapporo, Osaka, Tokyo, Nagoya, what about the other two rulings? There's going to be a second ruling in Tokyo, but... Actually, there's a ruling set to come out tomorrow. We're recording on June 7th, and it comes out June 8th from the Fukuoka District Court. The Nagoya Court ruling comes in the wake of the Group of Seven Summit that was hosted in Hiroshima last month. In the run-up to that event, it was pointed out by the media and other countries that Japan is the last G7 nation not to recognize same-sex marriage. Now, I don't think LGBTQ issues were talked about too much at the summit, Has there been any progress in Japan in the political sphere with regard to these issues? Yeah, well, one of the biggest stories in this area in the past few years has been consideration of a bill to, quote, 
foster understanding of sexual minorities. But note that this comes in lieu of a bill that would actually outlaw discrimination toward the LGBTQ community. Our colleague, politics reporter Gabriele Ninivaggi, has reported on the proposed bill, and there was initially a clause that read, quote, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or self-recognition of gender identity shall not be tolerated. Okay, that sounds like some progress. Sure, but that clause was amended following opposition from the ruling Liberal Democratic Party's conservative members to read, quote, no unfair discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity is allowed. Why would they feel the need to put that qualifier in there? The reasoning that was given is that the initial wording could cause confusion and a potential spike in sexual harassment of women in gendered spaces like restrooms or dressing rooms, according to Gabriela's article. Also note, the changes of discrimination will not be tolerated to unfair discrimination is not allowed, Hmm. as well as a change from self-recognition of gender identity to just gender identity a decision that is seen as eliminating the individual's role in determining their own gender. Okay, got it. So if we take the point of view of someone in the LGBTQ community, it seems like legislation still has a ways to go. If I'm a member of that community, though, can I find any wins in the current situation? I think when it comes to progress, you have to look at the population itself if you want any wins. Some polls put public support for same-sex marriage as high as 70%. The only counter to that, though, is that a lot of respondents don't seem to make the issue a priority. They support it, but only as far as they can say, sure, why not, in a phone poll. Fumino Sugiyama, who we'll be hearing from a little later, has gotten at this in previous stories in the Japan Times. He believes that the language surrounding LGBTQ issues is now firmly entrenched in society, and that's a win. But going forward, he wants more focus to go toward affecting actual changes that would better the lives of LGBTQ individuals. I'm curious. A lot of anti-LGBTQ sentiment overseas tends to come from religious groups. Like I can think of tenets in Christianity that are used to argue against same-sex marriage. Where is the objection to it coming from in Japan? Well, from a political perspective, what I've read in reports is that vocal lawmakers opposing it say that legalizing same-sex marriage runs the risk of changing what Japan understands as the traditional family. And what's probably similar to other countries, although not in a religious sense, is this value of marriage as an institution being thought of as only possible between a man and a woman. With that being said, though, Motoko Rich and Hikari Hida from the New York Times wrote in a piece last month that certain religious groups, such as the Shinto Association of Spiritual Leadership and the Unification Church, have pressured LDP lawmakers against giving legal protections to the LGBTQ community. They say that as a result of this pressure, the LDP is, quote, struggling to agree on even limited expressions of support for the rights of gay and transgender people. You wrote a piece last month titled LGBTQ plus family ship systems expand in Japan amid absence of national law. What is the family ship system? Yeah, so family ship systems and partnership systems are two certification frameworks that are becoming more common at the local level in municipalities across Japan. These systems help to better recognize queer partners and families as what they are in the current situation, where they can't be legally recognized as such in Japan. 
Of course, some might say these systems are sufficient, especially while same-sex marriage isn't legal. But the people I spoke to for this episode will explain why they think these systems aren't adequate. So, Annika, for this episode, you spoke to Fumino Sugiyama. Can you tell us a little bit about who he is? Yeah, so Fumino is 41 and was born in Tokyo and is the co-chair of Tokyo Rainbow Pride alongside Natsumi Yamada. And he says that despite the beard he has now, he once presented as a girl. In fact, he was even a member of Japan's national women's fencing team. Oh, wow. What did the two of you speak about? Well, he has a cisgendered female partner and they have two children. So he talked about his kids, of course, <laughs> but we mainly talked about his role in the running of Tokyo Rainbow Pride. You went this year, right? I did, along with around 240,000 other people. <laughs> Fumino spoke to me about how Japan's Pride event differs from what's done overseas. Overseas, you can block streets off to have these big kind of carnival-type celebrations. Here, though, you have to share the streets with Tokyo's busy traffic, and according to road laws, that means only getting to march down one lane of the road. Hey, one lane is better than nothing. True. <laughs> I think what was really interesting, though, was how Fumino spoke about the importance of even just having that one lane to march down the city streets. Well, I think these types of events are absolutely essential. I mean, looking back at the past 10 years, there's been huge progress in raising awareness and visibility of the LGBTQ community in Japan. A decade ago, very few people here were even familiar with the term LGBT, but now the term has become common knowledge. However, the area where progress is still lagging the most is in legislation. The fact that the laws haven't changed much remains a major issue. So, despite increasing awareness, the current situation is that LGBTQ individuals are still living under society and fundamental rules that function as if they don't exist. So, through events like Pride, it's important to convey the message that LGBTQ individuals actually exist in reality and are right there, perhaps even right next door to you. We are still in a phase where we need to continue firmly communicating that. So is Pride strictly a Tokyo thing? No. Pride events are now being held in like 30 locations across Japan. Not just in Tokyo, but also from Hokkaido to Okinawa, spanning the entire country. In that sense, I also think we've achieved considerable success in terms of visibility. I've heard from both Japanese people and non-Japanese people that compared to other countries, Japan is pretty peaceful. And so there isn't too much blatant discrimination towards queer people or violence for that matter. I think there are a lot of different opinions on this, and this is one of them. But this applies not only to the LGBTQ community, but also to the character of Japan as a society and as a country. Relative to other countries, Japan has low levels of violence, but we are not completely free from it. Hate crimes exist, and there have been cases of assault or even murder. 
However, in terms of numbers, it's likely very low. On the other hand, there's the experience of being ignored or being treated as if we don't exist. So, even though I may walk at the front of the parade without someone throwing a single stone at me, there is still deeply rooted discrimination and prejudice. As a result, individuals struggle with their self-esteem, suppressing themselves, blaming themselves, and sometimes this leads to suicide. The suicide rate among LGBTQ individuals is significantly high, with more than six times that of straight people, and over 10 times more than straight people for transgender individuals. And particularly during middle school and high school, there is a peak period where LGBTQ kids are really suffering. And so that's why I believe it is important to establish proper legal protections. Now, partnership and familyship systems have made incremental progress in recognizing same-sex couples and families, but some might also have the opinion that those systems are sufficient. What are your thoughts on that? On the partnership systems, it was in 2015 when the issuance of certificates for same-sex partners was first implemented in Shibuya and Setagaya wars in Tokyo. It was significant news in Japan. And now, after nearly eight years, I think over 300 municipalities have established them locally, and around 4,000 to 5,000 couples have applied for it. Starting from November 2022, it also started in metropolitan Tokyo, so now it covers about 70% of the population nationwide. So I think this is a very significant development. But there is that opinion that I've heard saying that having a partnership system is sufficient. While I do hear that, it's important to note that this is a system implemented by local governments and not a legal framework. It doesn't provide legal protection, so issues like inheritance and other aspects still pose challenges. Seeking same-sex marriage or marriage equality is about stating that while all citizens should be equal, there are people who can marry and people who can't. This implies that LGBTQ individuals are not included among all citizens. Such a message perpetuates deep-rooted discrimination and prejudice. So even if some suggest expanding the partnership system instead of pursuing same-sex marriage, there should be discussions about that, and some might even question the institution of marriage itself. But right now, it is a crucial law for human dignity, and I think we need to examine that as a start line. Right. Well, while the legal protections are still lacking, can you talk to us a little bit about acceptance in Japan and maybe from your personal experiences? So this well, I'm 41 years old, turning 42 this year, but when I came out, I was in my mid-teens. At the time, I told my parents that I might be transgender, where back then, I didn't even know the word transgender. So I used the term gender identity disorder. When I mentioned it, my parents couldn't even look me in the eye anymore. They thought I was mentally ill and told me to go to the hospital. That was a difficult time. 
But I also think my parents were struggling because they didn't know anything about it. Since then, we've repaired our relationship while facing many challenges, and now they are my biggest supporters, and our family gets along very well. At the same time, I think that both Japanese society and families, in general, are gradually becoming more aware and acknowledging that existence of diverse identities. However, when people like me openly speak about it, we attract attention as if we represent a completely new form of family. And I find that a bit strange. Families come in various forms, and there are as many shapes as there are families and individuals. So many different ways of living are emerging today, and I believe it's only a natural progression that we'll see different areas of family units emerging as well. Are many others starting to speak openly about this too? There are still many people who cannot speak up because they fear being bullied or ostracized, and they continue to live with that anxiety. That seems to be the current situation in Japanese society. Personally, I'm really grateful because the people around me, including my friends and family, have been incredibly supportive. In fact, we have three parents and six grandparents for our children, so they're happily and joyfully spending time with all these adults. Well, Fumino, thanks for joining us on Deep Dive. Thank you very much. Annika, it was interesting to hear how the current situation around the legal lack of protection for LGBTQ individuals is affecting Japanese citizens, though it's not limited to people who were born here, right? Right. And to get more on what needs to be done on the policy side, I spoke to Ellen McCready, who is a linguistics professor at Aoyama Gakuin University here in Tokyo. And she is originally from the United States, Texas, but has been living here for quite a long time. So I came here as an exchange student in 94, actually, to Waseda, and learned to speak Japanese, went to a lot of shows, made a zine about the hardcore and noise scenes. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Um, I also studied at Waseda for a semester I'm, in like Amazing. 2016. But yeah, um, I want to get into you, your family, your wife, and your experiences here in Japan. So how did you meet your wife, Midori? So we met in 98. Eight, I guess it was. Um, so one of my friends from my exchange period at Waseda came to Tokyo from his jet program situation out in Shimane and got all his friends together. And uh, I was one of his friends. And so was Midori. Oh. And so we all went to this yakitori place. Mm-hmm. And from the yakitori place, I was going on to a club and a few people came on with me. And that's how we met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we got married in 2000, actually on leap year day. Awesome. And so I'm going to get into your transition. Um, mm-hmm. Is it correct that you returned to the U.S.? Actually, no. I gave my mother a power of attorney and she went to the courthouse for me in Texas and handled the paperwork situation and the the conversation with the judge, which is what you have to do in Texas. Okay. These things. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So you were in Japan. Yeah, I was in Japan. Mm-hmm. How was that process? The process, you know, like I think it was actually quite a bit easier than it would be perhaps to do mm. it now in Texas. So I kind of thought it was going to be quite difficult because I'd seen horror stories on the internet 
and also because it's a bit um the procedure is a little bit unspecific because mm-hmm. you take your paperwork to the judge and the judge makes a decision based on what the judge thinks and wants yeah. and so if you draw the wrong judge you're in trouble oh. so people like were very very careful to make sure that their case would come up at a time that's judge x was working and stuff like this and Mm -hmm. you know i didn't do any of these things uh, but it it all went very easily i think my mom was in and out of there within half an hour an hour or something like that and then did you have any expectations on the japan side what did you expect on the legal side when you did have to transition in japan well i kind of didn't know what to expect because i hadn't really heard about other similar cases but making phone calls and, and looking around, it seemed like the thing to do was gender change in Texas, change the U.S. passport, take the new passport into the immigration and get them to update the residence card. Okay. And I thought, okay, this, this could be quite difficult, but actually it was extremely trivial. It only took, well, it's, it's immigration, so it, it took a bit of time. Yeah. But uh, so they didn't hem and haw in the back and kind of disappear for ages. They just did the thing on the spot, which is nice. But, you know, after that, it was complicated taking the residence card to the local ward office and trying to get them to update my local paperwork. Um, so, so they took my, my new residence card. They said, oh, yeah, no problem. Just wait a minute. And then they came back and they said, OK, so it says here that you're married, so you're divorced now. Yeah. And I said, no. And they're like, please wait a minute. And then the hemming and hawing and disappearing to the back began. And then... Finally, somebody came back and said, actually, we can't do this. We have to call to the Tokyo government. And then things went up to the Ministry of Justice. And like my impression was that nobody really knew what to do. And then ultimately, the decision was to do nothing. Okay. So in 2021, you and your wife sued Japan's government and your past and present municipalities of residence after they refused to recognize you and your wife's marriage following your transition. Mm -hmm. So can you lay out for listeners what happened there, how you decided to do so, and I guess where things currently stand? Sure. Yeah. So when the ward refused to do the paperwork update and told us to sort of sit tight and wait for a decision from the, the higher ups in the government, we thought, okay. You know, at a point, they contacted us and said, we cannot leave you as married, but we can put your wife down as a relative, distant enough relative to, as to not have another kind of name. So this we can do. And we said, no, we don't do that. And so then it went back to the drawing board and uh, it just sat there and sat there and sat there. And occasionally I'd call and say, what's going on? They'd say nothing. And then finally, they called us and said, okay, the directive is don't update that part. Hmm. You can change the name. And you can change whatever else, but you cannot change the gender marker wow. um, because, you know, because Japan doesn't have same-sex marriage. And so, like, it would cause a precedent that the government didn't want. Mm-hmm. And we thought, okay, um, what shall we do? Well, we either let it sit or we sue. And we decided that neither Midori or I are really people who are up for letting things sit when they seem wrong. <laughs> so we decided to sue and we, we crowdfunded a lawsuit, found some lawyers, and ultimately filed the lawsuit in 2021. The status of the lawsuit now, the government, as far as I can see, their goal is to drag this out as long as possible until, in hopes that somebody gets tired. Uh, and so, mm. so far, we have been petitioning for them to release documents relating to our case. After resisting this and resisting this, eventually they, resist, they released documents, but the documents were all redacted. Like, everything was blacked out. Everything. 
And so that now there's a petition to release unredacted documents and the government is deciding to resist this as well. So we're in like, we're two years in and we haven't even got the paperwork that they sent around. Hmm. So that's where it is at the moment. Okay. Yeah. And so it's extremely frustrating. And frankly, I am getting tired. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, that touches on my next question is what are the emotions that you, your wife and your family, right? You're, you have three kids. How do you feel going through all this? Um, well, you know, like I always feel that Japan is a very, very nice place to live. People are super nice and it's very safe and everything. Everything is great until you run up against the bureaucracy and then nothing is ever going to move ever. And so in a sense, like all my, all my worst predictions are confirmed in every way. Mm-hmm. So in a way I'm completely unsurprised. Uh, that said, between this and the, the Japanese government's handling of the borders under Corona, mm-hmm. Um, the combination of these things make me question in a way like what the long-term status of our life here is. Yeah. Yeah. But I've, I've been reading up on like partnership system and the family ship system in Tokyo. And have you heard things like if we have those systems, maybe you should take advantage of those or instead of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, of, of course people would say this because you know it's better to have a partnership system than nothing right Mm -hmm. or is the partnership system ultimately a red herring with no legal status that just makes people feel oh we got a band-aid on the problem we don't actually have to do the sutures (laughs) ultimately there's no sense in which a partnership is anything like a legal marriage you don't get hospital visitation rights the tax breaks aren't there you don't get the opportunity to have a visa, which in my case, of course, is not relevant since I got permanent residency, but still. And so like, it's very much not what you want, I guess. But for us in particular, like, we're already married. Why should, why should we do that for? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess one thing that's changed for Midori and I during this process is we start to question very much the institution of marriage itself and whether it even makes any sense to base your entire society, taxation, visa everything else around an institution that's that is itself like a kind of romanticization of romantic love Mm -hmm. okay like the the conclusion i think the two of us have drawn from all this is forget about marriage you know don't even want marriage we don't don't care if we're married but it's totally unfair the, the way the government is handling our situation and the situation of so many people for whom the stakes are much much higher for example, the visa situation. So for us, it's less a battle for our own sakes and more like a kind of, in a way, a public service. (laughs) Mm. As a foreigner who is an activist, who is vocal on these issues, what's your experience been like? And do you feel any differences from, say, if you were doing the same back in the U.S.? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I guess my my first question to myself when I started doing all these things was, is it my place? Mm-hmm. You know, but on the other hand, I live here for 20 years. I don't currently have a plan to leave. Mm-hmm. And so if I don't try to fix things here, who's going to fix them for me? I need them fixed and other need, other people need them fixed too. For this court case in particular, if I was Japanese, I couldn't do this. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have changed my gender marker in the first place. Mm-hmm. And this whole situation would never have arisen. So like, like in this situation, the entire premise of this idea of the possibility of activism is me being a foreigner. Mm. And then as far as other people who are not Japanese, you know, being a person with permanent residency and a secure job and something of a platform, 
I'm the one who can do it. So I'm the one who should do it. Basically, mm, yeah, is my yeah. thinking there. Yes. <laughs> um, and so that takes us into all that you are doing. If you want to give us a <laughs> layout of yeah, all the things that you're you've taken on. I mean, so there's this lawsuit thing, but independently of that, you know, so what kind of spaces are out there for queer people in Japan and in, in Tokyo specifically? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, you know, like people who aren't in the community would, would probably say, well, you, Shin, uh, Tokyo has Nichome mm-hmm. in Shinjuku, this gay area, historical gay area. So surely everything is nice. I think it's really, I think it's quite nice if you're a cisgender gay man. Mm-hmm. It's much less nice, but still there are spaces if you're a cis gay woman. Mm. But if you're trans or if you're queer in some other way, then there aren't really spaces for you there. And my own experience was always feeling rather uncomfortable in, in, the, in, the, in that area. Mm-hmm. The result of these things and the lack of space, lack of any space for people like us to be in, um, led us to start a party called Waifu, which is centered around queer femmes and trans people mm-hmm. and uh this has been ongoing since i guess 2019 okay so we've done we've done quite a few of these parties and it's been really nice for a lot of people i had people come up to me in those parties especially in the early days yeah. in tears and, and thank me for making the space and so, so i guess the, the common feature of all of these activities is the choice not to wait for somebody else to do the thing that i slash we want because you know, none of these things are done in isolation. They're all part of collectives, and all of us wanted to have certain things available to us and to others. So, yeah, that's what I've been up to in those ways. All right, Ellen, I'm really grateful to you for sharing so much with us today. Thank you so much for coming on Deep Dive, Ellen. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Annika, those were interesting conversations. We can put links to Ellen's and Fumino's socials in the show notes, and we'll be sure to cover the Fukuoka District Court's decision. Listeners can find that on japantimes.co.jp. Also in the Japan Times, the government aims to introduce new My Number personal identification cards in 2026, with changes to information written on the cards, according to draft proposals compiled by a government panel on Tuesday. The government will consider issuing the new cards with enhanced security as the current My Number cards introduced in 2016 will start to expire in 2026. The cards are valid for 10 years. The revisions are expected to be approved at a cabinet meeting on Friday. Japan is set to revise its working program for fourth-generation foreign nationals of Japanese descent and offer permanent residency to individuals who fulfill certain language requirements, immigration agency officials said Tuesday. The change to the program introduced in 2018 and aimed at helping develop human resources familiar with their home countries and Japan comes following low uptake among those eligible, as well as calls to ease its conditions on the maximum age and period of stay in Japan. Under its current provisions, fourth-generation Japanese abroad ages 18 to 30 are eligible to work in the country under a designated activities visa. The maximum period of stay is five years and their families are not allowed to join them. Our thanks again to Fumino Sugiyama and Ellen McCready. This week's episode of Deep Dive was produced by Dave Cortez. Dubbing for our Japanese interview was done by Taro. Our outro music was produced by Oscar Boyd, and the theme music is by Japanese musician 4L. I'm Sean McKenna, and my co-host today was Anika Osaki-Exum. Anika, would you like to do the honors? Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama.